Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. This week, I sit down with Adam Mount, who is a senior fellow and director of the Defense Posture Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Uh, Adam covers U.S. nuclear strategy, force structure, nuclear politics, deterrence, North Korea, and the subject of our conversation today, arms control. All right, let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm in the studio today with Adam Mount, uh, who is a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists, uh, works on arms control and nuclear strategy. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk to you about INF, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which the U.S. recently announced, from which the U.S. recently announced it was going to be withdrawing. What What does this mean for the future of arms control and for strategic stability between the U.S. and Russia? It doesn't mean anything good for the future of arms control. Uh, for the fa- for the past several years, um, there have been a number of challenges to the arms control regime. So, um, while the New START treaty is in place and it's being uh, implemented by all accounts pretty faithfully, um, both sides I think are abiding by the New START treaty, which is a great sign. Um, it it was never expanded like the Obama administration mm-hmm. expected. Now, the, the New START treaty, just for people who don't know, restricts both the number of intercontinental ballistic missiles and the number of uh, warheads. Yeah. So the New START treaty restricts um, all deployed strategic warheads across mm-hmm. all sorts mm-hmm. of delivery vehicles. So right. it restricts um, h- how many warheads the U.S. and Russia can put on the field and the, the vehicles that are right. able to deliver them. But it only covers the, the long range. Missiles. Strategic systems. Yes. And so the INF is the one that focuses on missiles that have a range of, what is it, 550 miles to... Yeah, it's it's 500 to 5,500 kilometers. 500 to 5,500. Okay. Right. And so what is the relationship between INF and New START? Well, New START covers a different class of systems, a different class of warheads. So it covers the strategic arsenal that the United States and Russia can... Uh, aim at each other's homelands. Mm-hmm. The INF Treaty is about shorter range missile systems that are mostly relevant in Europe. Right. And so this came about in the 1980s when there was concern about Russian development of these intermediate range missiles that could target U.S. allies in Europe and then the threat on the U.S. side to develop its own systems and deploy them to strike back at, at then Soviet targets. Right. And so the treaty was pretty successful for a number of years. Uh, um, Dan Coates recently gave a speech uh, detailing Russian violations of INF that said that together they eliminated about 2,600 prohibited missiles. And so that's a pretty successful treaty. Mm -hmm. And so for many years, the United States and our European allies uh, have been able to plan our defensive posture, um, assuming that Russia wasn't deploying these missiles. That's why it's so alarming when evidence started to surface uh, in the early Obama years that Russia was developing and deploying uh, these prohibited missiles. Now, there's some dispute about the violations because Russia's position is that either it's not in violation of the terms of INF or that the things that the U.S. is accusing it of doing fall into a kind of gray area and that it's not necessarily clear-cut. Can you discuss maybe the the accusations and the, and the counter-accusations? Yeah, sure. So for many years, the Russians refused to acknowledge that they were doing anything that could be remotely construed as violating the treaty. They refused to acknowledge that there was a missile that, that the United States was pointing to. 
they refused to acknowledge that they were doing anything wrong. They were just not bargaining or trying to resolve this issue in mm-hmm. good faith. And so, as I understand it, the Russian position is that this missile potentially has the capability to travel the distance that's covered by the INF Treaty, but it hasn't been tested to that distance. So for many years, the United States and Russia uh, were sort of at loggerheads. The U.S. insisted there was a violation. The Russians insisted that there was nothing wrong. The U.S. didn't want to share any more information to reveal sources, intelligence sources. And the Russians kept asking for it because they wanted to know how we had the information. And so... What was so interesting about this Coates speech was that he detailed in in more specificity uh, the Russian violation than any U.S. official had in the past. And so in in this speech, he described this sort of two-step that the Russians did with testing it. Mm -hmm. Under the treaty, you're allowed to test missiles of INF range on fixed launchers Mm -hmm. that are sort of fixed in place because uh, you're allowed to deploy and test cruise missiles that are launched from ship or from an aircraft. And so you can use these fixed launchers to develop and test those missiles. And so Coach says that they they tested the missile to ranges within INF prohibited range from these fixed launchers and then did a second round of testing uh, where they tested the missiles from mobile launchers below INF ranges. Mm-hmm. And so if you put the two tests together, you've got a missile that works at prohibited ranges on a launcher that it's prohibited from firing from. And so what he says in here is that it was de- it appeared to be deliberately designed to conceal this mm-hmm. violation. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty strong statement. It's helpful that they released this information. Uh, un- unfortunately, it, it does not seem clear that it is now um, put us on a path to resolving the violation. Mm-hmm. And then there were also Russian accusations that the U.S. was doing things that were at least technically in violation of INF two. Right. And so two of those are a little ridiculous. But one of them, uh, frankly, has some merit. Uh, the, the Russians claim that the U.S. Aegis Ashore System, what's called the Mark 41 launcher that is used to launch cruise missiles from ships, uh, can also potentially launch cruise missiles from land. So we have the system stationed in Romania. Uh, the system is capable of, it, it's it's deployed there to launch standard missile missile interceptors. Right. And this so, is part of the missile defense architecture that the US is building in Europe. Right, exactly right. And so uh, Steve Pfeiffer and some other people have said, well, th- there's a path forward here, right? If the Russians were interested in resolving this violation, they could demonstrate the 9M729, this violating cruise missile to U.S. officials, show how they would modify it to keep it in compliance with the treaty. And in exchange, the U.S. would allow them to inspect the Mark 41 launchers in Romania to show them that there aren't cruise missiles in there or that it can't carry cruise missiles. So there's a there's a path forward if both sides didn't want to mm-hmm. resolve the problems. But it's increasingly dubious that either side wants to resolve the problems with the INF Treaty. Right. And that's sort of the interesting part of all of this because it suggests that the problems aren't really technical. They're much more political and that there's certainly been a decision in the United States to walk away from the treaty, which was publicly announced, but also that Russia for some time has been indicating in one way or another that it's not necessarily interested in in seeing the INF regime prolonged. Can you talk a little bit about what led us to this state of affairs? Well, let's start with Russia. So when the Russians decided to develop and to test and deploy the 
9M729, you know, it, it was clearly part of a decision that it didn't want to be bound by INF anymore. Um, you know, they, they will have factored in potential U.S. replies to that violation when they made that decision. On the U.S. side, there's a whole range of um, really kind of toxic political issues about what arms control is for and how we manage strategic competitions with the Russians that are pushing the INF debate in a troubling direction. So, for example, um, the need for the U.S. to modernize and replace its nuclear triad is has sort of privileged arguments to the effect that the U.S. is facing um, infer military inferiority in the Baltics and in Eastern Europe, uh, especially from Russian non-strategic weapons. Mm -hmm. So because the Trump administration wants to develop new non-strategic weapons, th they have... Non-strategic nuclear weapons. Yeah, non-strategic nuclear weapons. Yeah. They have um, played up the threat from Russian non-strategic mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, which have been in place you know, through many decades of right. the Cold War. Going back to the 70s or 80s. Right. It's not a, the, the capability itself is not a new threat. Mm -hmm. And so along with that, we have seen congressional proposals for a range of U.S. systems that would violate the INF Treaty. So these involve conventional ground-launched cruise missiles and conventional, perhaps long-range artillery in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And so... Some people simply want new military capabilities. Mm -hmm. Whether they're defense contractors or just military hawks or whomever. Right. Um, there is a, a military rationale for uh, systems like a long-range artillery. We, we have huge uh, inferiority uh, in terms of the massive standoff conventional fires that we can mm -hmm. – Put into the Baltics. And so in a military contingency, it, it would end up being a problem. Mm -hmm. But what U.S. officials and many, member of many members of Congress are not doing is making a careful calculation about all of the costs and benefits of leaving the treaty. Mm -hmm. So if the treaty is dead, which I think is- Effectively is the case. The case. Then the situation we're faced with is- to weigh our costs and benefits carefully. Is the additional military effectiveness of long-range rocket artillery in Eastern Europe or a new class of conventional ground-based cruise missiles worth the political costs of leaving the treaty? Mm -hmm. Almost certainly not. The other thing that these policymakers should assess is does the treaty still constrain Russians' deployment of this system? Mm -hmm. And so if the if the United States leaves the treaty, you know, does does Russia's remaining limits come off and can they deploy more of these systems or different kinds of these systems? Um, and I think the answer is emphatically yes. Russia has a whole range of sort of exotic systems that it's developing and would be glad to carry out a much broader research and development program for this. Yeah, and it's easier for Russia to deploy these two because we'd be talking about deploying them on Russian territory. Uh, whereas for the U.S., if you're going to use these kind of systems in a way that threatens Russian assets, they have to be stationed somewhere like Germany or Poland or you know somewhere like that. And uh, the agreement to allow that kind of stationing is, is going to be politically problematic and is going to create lots of... Um, uh, counter responses on, on the Russian side that we may not want to deal with. Right. 
And, and U.S. military commanders think in terms of the strategic effects that they can have. Can we um, you know, put enough fire and hold at risk the targets that we need to be able to achieve our political objectives in a conflict? And that's a much broader calculation than thinking about do we have these specific systems of these specific ranges to mm -hmm. mirror the Russian capabilities? Right. Yeah, the positions of the U.S. and Russia are fundamentally different, and this was the case during the Cold War as well. Because again, for Russia, this is a, a kind of homeland defense issue, and they're talking about territories that are adjacent to Russian borders. Whereas for the U.S., this has always been about force projection and extended deterrence. Right, and so that's why the U.S. and Russia relies much more on sea and mm -hmm. aircraft-based missile fires in order to have the effects that it wants to have. Um, that that's how the United States plans to deter Russia. Um, that's the broader calculation that's really relevant here. And so a, a lot of this sort of discussion about whether we need intermediate range systems or non-strategic nuclear weapons tends to oversimplify the problem in mm -hmm. a way because it it tries to focus on whether there's a gap in a specific right. capability. Right. It focuses on than, the system rather than the problem. Right. Rather than are we able to deter Russian aggression? Mm -hmm. Are we able to defeat a Russian invasion? Right. Now, we've been talking a lot about the U.S. and Russia, but of course there are implications for the end of the INF Treaty for other countries as well. One that you hear come up a lot in these kind of conversations is China. Um, whether because you know, I've heard some Russians say that their interest in developing uh, capabilities that would violate the INF has to do with deterring China. Um, certainly there are implications for the U.S. ability to confront China if it develops these these capabilities as well. So can you talk a little bit about, how, about the broader non-U.S.-Russia context and especially about how China figures into the, the future of, of arms control in a post-INF world? Sure. There's a, a range of Asia specialists that argue that INF withdrawal will improve our hand uh, or our ability to uh, deter and to defend against Chinese aggression. Uh, the argument here is that a, a new range of conventional INF range systems in Asia could help provide for sea control and help to um, hold at risk uh, Chinese launchers within Chinese territory that could affect mm -hmm. these conflicts. The problem is we don't know where we could deploy these systems that would be mm -hmm. militarily effective. Right. Guam is too small. The Japanese are – it's going to be a hugely uphill battle right. for them to accept the system. Northern Australia is too far away. Mm -hmm. um, there's a major open question about where we would deploy these if we needed them. Mm -hmm. and, and some enthusiasts will say – we develop systems that we need, and we figure out where to deploy them later. <laughs> but if the list of countries is so small mm -hmm. and the and the lift is so high, uh, at some point it just becomes folly. It becomes way more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. So let's circle back to New Start and sort of arms control more generally. Um, New Start has to be renewed in was it twenty twenty one. Um, clearly, we have an administration in Washington now that's not interested in arms control in principle. Um, what does the demise of INF have to say about the future of New START and about the future of, of arms control more generally? A number of Trump administration officials have made a very troubling linkage between INF and New START. Um, they have, frankly, held at risk. Uh, they have raised the possibility that they would not be willing to 
renew New START without Russia resolving its INF compliance issues. That's frankly troubling. Um, we've always compartmentalized arms control with the Russians. You know, arms control becomes more important the worse your relationship is. And it's not a political reward for good behavior. It's a way of managing a risk that mm -hmm. is in both of your interests um, with a mechanism that you've negotiated so that it is in both of your interests. Uh, so, so it's extremely troubling to imagine that the Trump administration would um, refuse to extend New START, would abandon ongoing strategic stability talks, mm -hmm. would simply let this portfolio lapse um, because of a compliance issue on a, on a separate treaty. Mm -hmm. Or out of an ideological preference for a world where the United States is not constrained by arms control. I think that's exactly right. There, there's a, a number of people in Washington that for, for whom arms control is not about strategic stability, reducing the risks of war, U.S. national security objectives, cost-benefit analysis. There's a sort of a psychological or emotional calculus that takes hold where if the U.S. feels like it's cheated, how, how could we possibly remain in this treaty? Mm -hmm. How could we be subject to this indignity? Mm -hmm. you, you've heard that you've heard um, Ambassador Haley, when she was a member of the U.N., sort of speak in almost offended terms about, for example, North Korean mm -hmm. arms control proposals. Um, and that's that's really a, a troubling and toxic way to think about arms control, which should be dispassionate. It should be businesslike. It should be firmly rooted in, in American national security. Right. So what happens after the, the official U.S. withdrawal from INF? <laughs> so, so the 60-day period that the Trump administration has outlined uh, will end on February 2nd. Uh, in the next couple of – in the last couple of weeks, Russians have floated the idea of mutual inspections. That's something the Trump administration should push as far as possible. Their own theory is that – that they're trying to, um, you know, put Russia's feet to the fire to push them back into compliance. And if they have any interest in Russian returning to compliance, they should explore the possibility of mutual inspections as far as they can possibly take it. I don't expect that to turn out well, um, but it's absolutely what we should be doing. The broader challenge is how does the United States and Russia manage its mutual vulnerability, its strategic relationship in the coming decades. The United States is undergoing a major uh, nuclear modernization cycle. The Russians are a little more than halfway through their nuclear modernization cycle. And there's a whole set of new systems that are coming online at a point where our military relationship is becoming increasingly entangled and increasingly tense. There's a, there is a greater need for arms control now than there has been certainly since the end of the Cold War uh, and certainly – and maybe for some years within the Cold War. Um, it, you know, it's absolutely crucial that the United States and Russia find new ways of addressing and controlling not only the systems that they have in place now, but the ones that they plan to deploy in the future. Right. And, you know, you hear this a lot from people who are very deeply engaged in this world. That one of the problems is that, you know, the, the gap between strategic and non-strategic or between nuclear and non-nuclear capabilities is narrowing to the point where traditional arms control that limits the number of 
you know, hydrogen bombs that you can have doesn't really account for all of the potential threats anymore in a world where you can have similar strategic effects with conventional weapons or with cyber weapons or with various other kinds of tools and figuring out how to integrate all of these different threats into a, a common arms control framework is, is really the, the next challenge. That's exactly right. Even within the nuclear portfolio, there's a lot that we've got to cover, right? The Russians are deploying new hypersonic air-launched ballistic missiles, new hypersonic glide vehicles, um, you know, a range of sort of exotic and mm-hmm. slightly obscene systems like right. this sort of intercontinental torpedo that could irradiate <laughs> the eastern seaboard. I mean, it's cold, it's certainly Cold War thinking, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the sort of paranoid depths of the Cold War that are it's the strange, the strange Lovian uh, aspect of it right. all. Right. And in addition, there are all these sort of Russian non-strategic systems that we have a strong interest in com- controlling. Uh, and then there are outer space issues that are related to nuclear weapons that are um, increasingly worrisome too. So even within the nuclear portfolio, there's a great deal that needs to be controlled. Mm-hmm. We want to do trilateral arms control with China f- for reasons that you've pointed out with respect to the complexities of of the INF systems um, and and just more broadly as a way of um, ensuring strategic stability between all three countries. But like you say, the broader set of weapon systems and capabilities that now can affect the strategic balance is growing by the year. And if we're going to prevent nuclear war over the next several decades, like we did in the during the Cold War, it's going to take arms control. And some luck. And some luck. I think there's a strong case to be made for a treaty that covers not just the systems that we have in place now, but these potential systems that could come online in the next years and in the next decades. And so, so balancing this arms control agreement would be difficult because the Russians are about halfway done with their nuclear modernization cycle, mm-hmm. and we're just starting ours. But on the other hand, the Russians have more types of systems that we're interested in controlling, like the non-strategic systems, like all of these exotic supplements. And what we have is a missile defense system that is terrifying to the Russians for apparently a range of reasons that we don't totally understand or accept. Good and not so good reasons. Right. And we have all of these... Uh, new nuclear modernization programs that are coming online. And neither country really wants to or may be able to invest the funds that are required to fully put all of these mm-hmm. um, programs in place and on the field. So there's a there's a fiscal incentive and also a stability incentive to talk seriously about upcoming risks to strategic stability from emerging technologies, but also more immediately from the the programs and the systems that are um, already underway. Mm-hmm. You know, arms control, it, it, in some ways, it's, it's an antiquated concept. It's a time-tested concept in a radically new technological environment. And so right. it's going to take some new thinking and, quite frankly, some political will that we have not seen manifest in the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, on the the new thinking side, I, I know there are people like you and, and some other folks that we've had on the podcast in the past who are working on these issues. And I think there are a lot of good ideas out there. Whether the political will materializes to do anything about them, of course, we have less control over. But 
Adam, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Welcome to one of our periodic mailbag segments. This is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. Um, Our first question comes from Byron Cole, who is the executive director of Disarmament for Development. Uh, Byron says, I love listening to your podcast and other CSIS podcasts. Thank you for the shout out. I hope that you can bring an expert on your show to talk about missile defense and Russia's position on it. I view missile defense as a good deterrent to rogue regimes, not as a means to gaining an edge on a nuclear power and not negating a nuclear poten- their nuclear potential. Uh, in my opinion, we should have missile defense pointed at proliferators wherever they are. Why is this not a popular view worldwide? Uh, well, Byron, thank you for your question. I hope uh, our discussion with Adam Mount uh, addressed at least some of your questions. Let me um, say a little bit about Russia's view of uh, missile defense. Um, for Russia, the relationship with the United States is very much based on mutually assured destruction, uh, which is the foundation of the Russian view of strategic stability. Uh, this is a notion, of course, that goes back to the Cold War, which is that if both sides know that in the event of a conflict, they're going to uh, effectively be committing suicide, it's going to make them uh, less willing to pull the trigger in the first place. Um, That was the basis for signing the ABM Treaty uh, in the 1970s, which limited the ability of either side to produce uh, anti-ballistic missile systems, the concern being that those systems would um, allow for a first strike because you knew that if you took out the majority of the other side's offensive weapons, missile defense would allow you to knock down whatever was left and it would effectively um, make you invulnerable to retaliation and would therefore make um, an offensive strike more likely. Now, the U.S. since the end of the Cold War has argued that this paradigm doesn't really apply anymore, that we're not locked in a uh, existential struggle with the Soviet Union. We don't have any intent uh, of launching nuclear weapons at the Soviet Union, or sorry, at Russia. Presumably, Russia doesn't have any intent of launching nuclear missiles at us. Um, But there are other uh, kinds of problems, uh, so-called rogue states that are developing uh, nuclear warheads and and missile capabilities, countries like Iran and North Korea, uh, and that the U.S. should be able to develop missile defense systems in order to prevent the threat from those kind of of regimes, which, as the argument goes, may not be susceptible to conventional deterrence. Because if they're, and again, I'm not endorsing this position, but the position of advocates is that if a regime is motivated by an extremist ideology of one kind or another, it may not be uh, deterrable in in rational terms. Uh, And so you need to have sort of absolute defense, um, which uh, an ABM system would would give you, especially against a country that only has a handful of, of nuclear missiles. Russia has never really bought into that paradigm, um, believes that countries like Iran and North Korea uh, at the end of the day are as rational as certainly the Soviet Union or Maoist China was uh, and are unlikely to act any more uh, irresponsibly if they have uh, nuclear missiles. At the same time, uh, Russia, much more than the United States, is still worried about uh, the potential for superpower 
for lack of a better term, conflict. Um, it does worry that the U.S. will get an unmatchable advantage um, that would allow it to carry out a, a first strike uh, against Russian offensive weapons if, it, if it's protected by an ABM system. And for that reason, Russia objected to the U.S. withdrawal from um, the ABM treaty uh, during the Bush administration, and it continues to object to U.S. plans to build and develop uh, ABM systems both in Europe uh, and in Asia. Now, the U.S. has argued that the systems that it's building, uh, and Byron's letter mentions um, the European phased adaptive approach, which is the, the system that the U.S. is building in um, Central and Eastern Europe. Um, the U.S. says, well, this system is pretty limited. It can knock down a couple of nuclear missiles launched by, say, a country like Iran. Um, and Russia says, well, First of all, that doesn't make a lot of sense because if you have a nuclear interceptor that's based in Romania uh, and you're worried about a missile from Iran uh, going towards the United States, that missile's not going to fly over Romania. Uh, second, um, the Russians look at what the U.S. is, is developing in, in Europe and say, okay, it doesn't pose a threat to Russia's arsenal today, but once the principal uh, that the U.S. can uh, build these systems has been established. Once the infrastructure is in place, uh, it can grow and, and adapt. Uh, the U.S. calls the system the European phased adaptive approach. Uh, that is, it rolls out in phases. It can be adapted to meet new threats. And for Moscow, that effectively means that in the future, it can be adapted uh, in ways that would potentially render it uh, a threat to Russia's um, nuclear potential. And so Russia continues to oppose it. Um, this is an issue that uh, has generated a lot of, of heat and has been the source of a lot of uh, U.S.-Russia and U.S.-Soviet um, confrontation going back 30 or 40 years. Um, I don't see um, tensions over this issue dissipating anytime soon. Um, if anything, with uh, the deployment of U.S. Um, ABM systems in Asia, uh, I think uh, the role that countries like China play in this dispute um, are going to, to escalate in the future as well. So for better or worse, uh, continue watching this space. All right. Our next question comes from Andrew Denary. Um, Andrew asks, uh, I'm curious as to how much, if at all, you think historical context and national identity play a role in how the countries between Russia and the West approach their place in the security order. Can these states use national identity as a touchstone for whether or not they orient themselves to Russia or the West? Well, Andrew, how much time do you have? I think for most of these countries, um, their relationship with Russia and or the West uh, is very much a question of, of national identity. Uh, it's do they see themselves as part of uh, Europe uh, or the West writ large, uh, or do they see themselves as part of a sort of uh, Russian world? Um, and how people see that identity in countries like Ukraine is very much a source of political contestation. Um, in some cases, it's a question of uh, geography, um, countries that have longstanding ties to, to Western and Central Europe tend to want to orient themselves in that direction, whatever their history was during the Cold War. Um, countries that uh, were forcibly incorporated into the Russian Empire or into the Soviet Union 
often uh, want to escape from what they see as the uh, suffocating embrace of, of Russia. At the same time, uh, there are people uh, in places like eastern Ukraine whose identities uh, are very closely tied to the Soviet past, uh, have a lot of overlap with the identities of people living in Russia, and may not see themselves as Russians per se, but nonetheless um, have uh, an affinity, a tie, uh, emotional, personal, economic uh, to Russia and don't want that tied to be severed. Um, and so a lot of the political debate in Ukraine in particular turns very much on this question. Uh, is Ukraine a Western country or is it something else? Um, I think a lot of the intra-Ukrainian political upheaval over the last couple of decades, it's often portrayed as democracy versus authoritarianism. But I think that's the wrong way of framing it. I really think it's much more about this question of identity. Uh, it's much more about do people see Ukraine and do people want Ukraine to move closer to the West or do they want to um, move, if not closer to Russia, at least remain uh, closely tied to Russia. And I think the war, uh, the Russian occupation of, of Ukrainian territory has pushed many Ukrainians more towards the, the kind of pro-Western uh, orientation, regardless of their views on, on democracy or authoritarianism or anything else. Um, but that seems to be, you know, kind of where this goes. One of the things we're seeing now in some other places, uh, including in the Balkans and, and in parts of, of Central Europe, is that these countries have, to a significant degree, moved towards the West um, over the last couple of decades. And now there are at least some people within those societies who are dissatisfied with the way that their lives have turned out uh, and see some sort of pivot back towards Russia as being uh, an alternative. Um, you certainly see this in a place like Hungary, where the rise of Viktor Orban and then in his Fidesz party has been very much tied to uh, rethinking the past and rethinking uh, Hungary's relationship vis-a-vis -vis the West uh, and Russia. And this was symbolized just within the last uh, couple of weeks by the decision to take down the statue of, of Imre Naj, who was the uh, the Hungarian uh, premier during the, the 1956 revolution against Soviet domination and who was ultimately executed by the Soviets for his role in, in leading that uprising. Uh, Naj was for the last half century a, a Hungarian national hero for his resistance to Soviet domination and now you have a government that says effectively that he was uh, he was anti-national. He was, he was not acting in Hungary's interest and, and took down the, the statue as a way of identifying Hungary more with Russia and the Soviet past, even though, of course, Hungary remains a member of the European Union and NATO. And our last question for today comes from Philip Ade. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Philip, uh, who is based in Florence, uh, Italy. Uh, and Philip asks, assuming the U.S. has concluded that Russia will not voluntarily return Crimea to Ukraine, how far do you think the U.S. will go to force Russia to return Crimea? Or is it more likely that the U.S. will conclude sooner or later that Crimea is a lost cause? Thanks for your question, Philip. I think effectively um, the chances of Russia giving Crimea back to Ukraine are slim to none. 
and that the most likely outcome over the longer term is that uh, de facto, there will be some uh, acknowledgement of that fact by the United States uh, and its allies without any sort of formal acceptance or recognition uh, of Crimea being part of Russia. There are precedents for this sort of thing. I think the, the best example uh, may have to be with northern Cyprus, uh, which was occupied by Turkish forces in the mid-1970s. Um, at the time, it created a, a major crisis in relations between the U.S. and Turkey, between um, the European U.S. between other NATO allies in Turkey. Um, even to this day, neither the U.S. nor any of the European countries recognize uh, Turkish control of northern Cyprus, but effectively uh, it is integrated with Turkey. Um, now, of course, it creates problems for the people who live there in terms of their ability to travel um, and to um, move outside of, of their de facto republic. But the overall relationship uh, has moved on. And I imagine that you're going to see something similar uh, happen with Ukraine over the course of time. Um, because of the principle of territorial uh, integrity and, and sovereignty, it's unlikely that the U.S. or, or its European allies will recognize uh, officially Russia's annexation of Crimea. Uh, it would set a terrible precedent. But effectively, as with the case of Northern Cyprus, I think the, the ethnic identity of the, the people living in Crimea um, most likely is going to incline them to prefer uh, allegiance to Russia rather than allegiance to Ukraine. Uh, I think if you held a, a free and fair uh, poll or vote in Crimea, that would probably be the case. And also, there's not really much uh, that the U.S. or its allies have in the way of leverage uh, to force the return of Crimea uh, to Ukraine. So my guess is that sanctions that were imposed over the annexation of Crimea will continue to remain in place, uh, probably for the long term, but um, there won't be uh, any sort of real new uh, aggressive push to, uh, to force Russia to return uh, Crimea. I think the situation in eastern Ukraine is a little different. I know your question was, was only about Crimea, because in eastern Ukraine, it's not clear that the people have uh, the same interest or affinity for, for Russia as, as seems to be the case in Crimea. Uh, there's an ongoing conflict uh, in eastern Ukraine. Um, and there's also uh, the Minsk Agreement, which uh, by which Russia confirms that it intends to uh, return these territories to Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, there, I think the the end game is going to be their eventual reincorporation in Ukraine with some kind of um, political concessions related to decentralization. But under what circumstances, uh, under what conditions, we actually get progress towards the implementation of that agreement is uh, still a, a big question and it is very much a, a problem for the future. So thanks again for, for your question. Thanks for joining us. That's our show for today. Uh, there is a link to Adam's bio in the show notes. Uh, for those of you who haven't, of course, this is your uh, biweekly reminder to subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. Uh, and if you don't use iTunes, you can do the same uh, on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Uh, listen, sign up, uh, leave us a rating and review, and tell your friends. 
Also, send us your mailbag questions. We hope you enjoyed uh, the questions that we answered on the podcast today. Um, if you're going to send us mailbag questions, you can email them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, also, you can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Uh, and of course, uh, as always, big thank you to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast happen. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, uh, and the whole CSIS external relations and ILAP team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Thank you.